This is Peace Talks Radio, a series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Megan Kamrick. How do we find peace and how do we make peace last? It's easy to lose hope when faced with conflicts that seem intractable. But there are people working on solutions, even reaching across divides that seemed insurmountable in the past. On this edition of Peace Talks Radio, we talk with Noga Harpaz, an Israeli, and Raid al-Hadar, a Palestinian, who are part of Combatants for Peace. This is the group that's committed to nonviolence, and it was launched in 2006 by former combatants who believe the cycle of violence can only stop when Israelis and Palestinians join forces. Their work was the focus of the documentary Disturbing the Peace. Now, a little later in the program, we'll talk with Peter T. Coleman, a psychologist with the Teachers College at Columbia University and director of the Morton Deutsch International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution. He and his team study peaceful societies to understand how peace is sustained. It's a very different approach from the typical strategy of studying peace processes after conflict. Coleman compares it to medicine that focuses on promoting wellness rather than treating disease. But again, we'll start with Raid al-Hadar. Now, he's one of the founders of Combatants for Peace. When he was eight, he saw his cousin killed by an Israeli settler while tending his lands. During the first intifada, one of his best friends in high school was killed by an Israeli soldier during a protest. This drove al-Hadar to take revenge, and he was arrested while trying to build a failed bomb. While in prison, he was convinced armed conflict was the only way to end the occupation, but gradually his thinking changed. Another cousin died in the second intifada, and he began to question if violence was the correct path. His answers to questions put to him by Megan Kamrick are translated by Serene Akkad. What was the first idea that somehow, if we can talk to each other, this could be another way? If we could talk to Israelis? يعني أنا كان في في سنة 2004 he met with a group of Israelis inside of Israel and he realized that these Israelis do want peace for Palestinians and don't acknowledge the occupation of the Palestinians and like the Palestinians they want peace for them as well. Uh, during the second intifada, he realized that not only were Palestinians being killed, um, also Israelis were being killed, not at the same rate, but also many Israelis lost their lives as well. Many people on both sides lost loved ones, and through this, they were able to relate. So he started meeting with these Israelis on a day-to-day basis and started discussing joining forces to bring about peace in a nonviolent way. From their point of view, there were the Palestinians that were throwing stones and attacking them and using any chance that they could to attack them. And on their end, there were the Israeli soldiers that could have killed their loved ones or destroyed their homes. The gatherings, people give their own stories. Why is that important to building trust, even though it can be very difficult to listen to? Yeah. First of all, we can't build trust within another if we don't open our minds to one another. And we opened our hearts to one another. And we listened to each other very well. Because there are borders and walls that are built between us, those walls need to come down. If we actually stop and take the time to listen to one another and actually choose to listen, we can break down these borders between us. It wasn't easy for us to build trust with one another or even to be sitting on the same t- table. 
We actually weren't believing it ourselves. The people around us were actually thought of it as very weird. Your community? His mother asked him, are you crazy? You're going to meet with these people. These people, one of them could have been the ones that killed your friend. He thinks that speaking with one another and building trust and breaking down these borders is eventually what's going to reach us to peace, not the violence of using weapons and attacking one another. And it needs a lot of support, what they're doing. I want to turn to Noga Harpaz. Yeah. What was your experience like growing up in Israel? Did you experience attacks or fear of attacks? My early childhood was during... Uh, quite an optimistic time in Israel. Uh, it was the early 90s. So we have just signed an agreement with a peace agreement with Jordan. We started negotiation with the Palestinian Authority. And there was this sense of optimism that peace is possible and that, that things are going to change. After Rabin assassination, uh, there were continuous attacks in Israeli cities, the the most extreme time was during the Second Intifada, so about two thousand year two thousand and on. A lot of suicide bombers managed to come into Israel, and they would search for the most populated sites, if it, if it's a shopping mall or restaurants during uh, an Israeli holiday where a lot of people would come out, or uh, they would go on buses, and they would blow themselves up. One of the um, tactics that would see again and again was that after the suicide bomber blew himself up, a lot of people, you know, running toward the bus, toward the, the restaurant, trying to help. And then a second bomb would, would be exploded from afar by, by phone. And this kind of violence reached my personal life um, when I was in the 10th grade. It was yeah, year 2000, 2001. A suicide bomber went on a bus uh, in Haifa, my hometown. So a lot of high school kids were on that bus. And he went on and blew himself up right in the middle of, of Haifa in a very central street and killed 19 people. Two of them were my classmates. What impact did that have on you? I mean, what was your view of Palestinians growing up? So I didn't understand this as inherent violence or people who just want to kill all of us no matter who we are. But I did had a very hard time imagining a person planning this kind of attack planning the way to maximize the number of dead, to see that he will get young kids. And it was so depressing because we already started this other way of action by diplomacy, and now, again, all this violence. And it became really hard to believe that, you know, Palestinians will someday be willing to renounce violence and accept us as people who live in the same land as there. How did you get involved with the Combatants for Peace group? Around the year 2014, it became harder and harder for me to not be active. In that year, uh, Israel started the last war on Gaza. 
the way it was broadcast in the Israeli media was very hard uh, for me to accept. We will get these ho- horrific pictures from Gaza of entire neighborhoods being destroyed. We hear the number of casualties that reached thousands uh, just in a few weeks, and many of them were kids. You know, growing up, I w- we were always told that the IDF is, is unique. This is the Israeli Defense Force? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry. The Israeli army is unique because its, it's all purpose is defense, and he has a very high moral standard in a way that he won't directly attack civilian population. But in Gaza, there were airstrikes on civilian neighborhoods. And the way it was explained in the Israeli media was the fact that we gave these people five minutes warning to evacuate the building. And five minutes is just not enough. And you can see the result in the number of casualties. So I just couldn't sit at home and accept that this is what my government is doing in my name. So I started going to uh, protest in Tel Aviv. There were big protests against the Gaza war. And in one of those protests, there were two speakers from an organization I didn't knew at the time called Combatants for Peace. One of them was Israeli and one of them was Palestinian. And they presented themselves and called us to join them in nonviolent struggle and to stop the war in Gaza. And I, the Palestinian speaker was so impressive. He talked to us in Hebrew. He called us to renounce violence. He called us to join hand in the effort to build a future for both nations. And I just thought, I mean, how brave is this man to come to us to the middle of Israel in, in, while there's a war going on? So I just had to look up this organization. What was the atmosphere or the reaction in your community when you wanted to get involved in this? I have the support of my close family. My parents, luckily, are very, very supportive and proud of what I'm doing. I think other people, I guess, consider me as a bit naive, walking toward peace. You know, it's not the 90s anymore. But there are other parts of the Israeli society that that I know through social media that consider me as very dangerous, working with Palestinians, working with Arabs. I'm I'm naive to the point that I'm that I'm endangering Israel. Practically, I'm a traitor to my people. Are are you both in danger for the work you do? يعني he can't say that it's endangering to his life, but it is hard. For both Palestinian and Israelis to join forces together, specifically on the land, and to come and throw po- protesters, to throw protests um, against occupation, it's very hard. He always says that when they do join forces and they're walking on the streets, it's like they're walking on streets with broken glass. There are people that are in support of them and are in awe of what they're doing, and then there are people that are also against them and what they're doing. There are people that see what they're doing and stop and actually start to think about what it is that they're doing and what they're 
doing is bringing more people aware of the situation. And there's no direct threat to them. Noga, what about you? I can't say that I feel um, afraid for my life. On a day-to-day basis, I get most of the criticism through social media. So, yeah, a lot of criticism, sometimes very hurtful cursing and very unpleasant. And I think the most scary day for us is on Memorial Day. In Israel, one day before we celebrate our Independence Day, we have a day that we call it Memorial Day. And in that day, we commemorate soldiers who lost their life fighting for Israel since before the formation of the state of Israel and since. Last year's, uh, we also remember the names of those who were killed in terror attacks. So it's a very emotional time in Israel. And for the last 12 years, Combatants for Peace is doing Israeli-Palestinian joint memorial service in which we commemorate the victims in both sides. And we uh, remember the names of uh, the victims, both Israeli and Palestinian. And we share our grief. And we hear each other's stories, even the most difficult ones. This event for many Israeli is extremely moving and hopeful. Last year, about 5,000 Israelis attended this ceremony. The, every year we have to get uh, a bigger auditorium. And last year we, it was the biggest one yet, and still we couldn't fit all, but all the people. This ceremony is broadcast live, and we get hundreds of thousands of people watching it around the world. And still, for many Israelis, it's very hard. It's, it's, it touches them in a very soft spot, and they feel that we don't honor the one that they lost. And so there is a protest in front of the ceremony. And last year, the protest got extremely violent. Members of Combatants for Peace had to join hand in a row in order to enable people to just walk in the building. And, you, you know, there's, these are Israelis who chose to spend Memorial Day like this. These are bereaved parents who feel that the best way to commemorate their son or daughter is by doing something that will make us hopeful for the future, to make sure that will be no more bereaved families. And they got spitting on and cursed, and it was carried to get them back to their cars. Is there a similar backlash in your community against some of these peacemaking efforts? There's no thing of like that extent of yelling or cursing or spitting on them, but there are like um, friends that will go like on social media and call them traitors for working with Israel. Palestinian culture is very different than Israeli culture, so the way that they attack him is going to be different than the way they'll attack Noka. 
it's been several years since he's been with this program, and people have known that he's been with this program, so it's now reached to the point where people maybe consider him a traitor. They, he thinks like he can see where they're coming from for calling him a traitor, like once there's more people joining them in the streets, more people are becoming more aware. The most he can do is educate those people and try to explain to them what it is that they're doing on both sides and try to tell them their side of the story as well. And some of them actually do come on and be like, what you're doing is good for the Palestinian cause. Because the Palestinian right is a lot, comes through peace and through struggle and fighting. We are not a group of people that go behind closed doors and fight. When we fight, we come together in the streets. Where do you find hope that you'll succeed? The more people, both Israeli and Palestinian, decided to walk together, I think we, each day and each month and each year, we feel how much our cause is combined and how much we have in common looking toward to the future. And, you know, I think whoever joins us in, in Combatants for Peace will be much more hopeful for the future. He thinks that if we lose hope, hope we basically lose life. He gets help from an Israeli girl who is one of her fathers, is also um, one of the founders for Combatants of Peace, who refused to serve in the Israeli Defense Force, Defense Force and was imprisoned. He gets help from our humanity that is stronger than the bullets and the gas t- tear gas that is being thrown and the violence that is being used by the occupation forces. You can hear more from Noga Harpaz and Raid al-Hadar with Combatants for Peace in the complete interview recording available at our website, peacetalksradio.com. We'll have more here with them right after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, along with Megan Camrick. We're online with all of our shows dating back to 2002 at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. You can look for our September 2018 episode for more from today's guests. Megan Camrick is talking with Raid Al-Hadar and Noga Harpaz. They're part of Combatants for Peace a group founded to bring together former combatants in Israel and Palestine to share stories and advocate for a peaceful settlement in the long-running and brutal conflict. What can people in other places of intense conflict learn from you and what you're doing? He thinks that people all over the world have... um, 
us saying what's going on when it comes to conflict, especially America, and doing so. So the people need to reach out and help people that are going through these occupation and conflicts. Like Israelis and Palestinians, they're in the center of this conflict and they were able to come together and speak to one another and break down these bridges and slowly and surely build trust in one another. America, which is one of the major supporters of this of Israel, is not even able to bring together these forces like they are doing so and break down the walls between the Israelis and Palestinians that there are. What they're doing through combatants of peace and joining forces together and breaking down these walls, I think that anyone that is living in a conflict area can learn from what they're doing. No, God, do you have anything to add? Yeah, um, well, I really agree with Rod that uh, hope will come from the people living in the area. And, you know, Combatants for Peace is a unique example in history of uh, ex-fighters of both sides joining hand in a joint struggle while the conflict is going on and not after it in the the phase of reconciliation. And I think ex-fighters has a lot of power in both of our societies, not because they have more right to speak up than other people, but because they remember what it was that made them fight in the first place. They remember the fear. They remember the anger. They remember the sense of responsibility and going out and protect your people. But also, they remember the severe price of a violent struggle and the effectivity and hope that we have in the non-violent struggle. Among those who are participating in Combatants for Peace, what are the easiest things to agree on? (laughs) Where do you find common ground? (laughs) (laughs) Food? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think Food is normalization. <laughs> well, I think in for the Israeli and Palestinian uh, example is that uh, first we agree that we cannot have Israeli military control on civilian population in the West Bank. Uh, And after that, we agree on the fact that we are both uh, have strong connection to this land and that we want to live in peace. You know, after that, we're people and we want to get to know each other. We want to work together. We want to laugh, not cry. What do you think the biggest obstacles are to finding common ground? There are many things that they may not agree on, like many Israelis come from a different cultural background. Like many of them served in the army and they come through that process of needing to be in charge. That thought process is what maybe led to some of the obstacles when joining forces and combatants for peace. And the Palestinian need for wanting and wanting peace and wanting this and wanting to gain their rights from the Israelis also led to some of the conflict and struggle between them. What do you think, Noga? I think the biggest obstacle is that in both sides, people don't believe that if they would be the first one 
to put down their arms, the other side wouldn't be violent toward them. So they would give up on the 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 way they have to protect themselves, and they will just end up defenseless. I think a lot of Israelis think that if Israel will give up even some of its control over the West Bank, Palestinians will use this newfound freedom in order to attack Israel. And I think a lot of Palestinians think that Israel is that even if they would act nonviolently, Israel would still attack them, control them, take over their lands, and so forth. Are there peace leaders in history that you are inspired by that guide your work? Mandela. <laughs> Nelson Mandela? Yeah, the style of Mandela. Mm-hmm. It's close from, from us. Well, I'm I'm major in American history, so I guess <laughs> yeah, I guess for me it's uh, Martin Luther because Martin I, Luther King. Yeah, mm-hmm. yes, uh, because I'm I'm thinking a lot about the way he used very fundamental American values when he spoke about about the black community and he, the way he used nonviolent and showed a lot of white folks that the ones that are being violent are not the black students. And that is very inspirational. But we have also a creative style for us, special special for the competence for peace. We are now building build this style. A style of peace. Exactly. Hmm. You're breaking new ground. What are Palestinian and Israeli leaders doing wrong in the pursuit of peace? يعني أنا بعتقد إنه ال القيادة الفلسطينية he thinks that with the Palestinian or Liberation Organization, there's nothing that they can do. Their status is just so low that they have no capability to do anything. The Israeli government holds the power in the land, and they have the rights to the, the land and what they want to do with it. So it's on their end to join forces and bring about peace to both people. Like Mahmoud Abbas has tried to talk to the United Nations to bring about Palestinian rights or even getting Palestine recognized through the UN and even through this Palestinians are not going to be able to reach their full rights. And he hopes that countries will put more force onto Israel to join forces and maybe come to a solution for both sides to be able to live in peace. What about you, Noga? I don't believe that the current Israeli government is trying to pursue peace. I think is trying to stall. Stall. stall yeah. Mm-hmm. Because she doesn't want to give up the West Bank, but she doesn't want to annex it either. So they're just trying to keep on to their chairs. And I, I don't believe they they do any effort in order to bring peace to our region. We've heard of different kinds of collaborative efforts, like what you're doing between Palestinians and Israelis for a long time now. Is there any sign that these efforts are influencing the processes at the higher levels of government? 
يعني احنا فلسطينيين مش بحاجه نوص نوصل اللي بنعمل فيه حتى يتغير رايهم لان الراي الفلسطيني والموقف الفلسطيني هو what they're doing necessarily doesn't need to get to the Palestinian Liberation Organization because the Palestinians and what they want is known. They want the end of the occupation, the right of return, and the right to return to their land. All Palestinians agree to this. At the end of the occupation, this is what they want. The problem lies within the Israeli government. I don't know if these efforts has any real effect on the um, political level. I know that it has an effect on the people. I think more and more Israelis understand that things can't go on the way they are right now. And that we can't keep control of uh, people without any political rights and without any legal way to affect the institution that control every part of their lives. We can and we need to find more creative solutions in order to both of our nations to live in this land. Well, Rahad Hadar Noga Harpaz, thank you for talking on Peace Talks. Thank you. Thank you. You can hear more from Rahid Al-Hadar and Noga Harpaz with Combatants for Peace in the complete interview recording available at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. What you do is click on their photo on the page for our September 2018 episode at the website. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and we continue today's program with Megan Kamrick's conversation with Peter T. Coleman. He's a psychologist with the Teachers College at Columbia University and director of the Morton Deutsch International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution. Coleman told Megan Kamrick that contrary to what we may believe, very few conflicts become intractable quagmires. There are two, two men, Paul Deal and Gary Getz, who are political scientists, who study something called the Correlates of War database. It's a database that's about a 200-year-long database that looks at how different states, different nations around the world have treated each other over that 200-year period. And so what they're able to do in a database like that is look at you know, relationships between nations that get stuck in these more contentious, difficult, what they call enduring rivalries, what I would call intractable conflicts, where there is a lot of contempt and suspiciousness and enmity and competition that takes place between them, sometimes for 30, 40, 50 years. But even those kinds of more destructive relationships between nations can change and can end. But usually the things that lead to that are not what we usually employ, diplomacy or attempts at trade. Usually it takes something else to change that relationship because they've become so stuck in these quagmires. And so one of the things that they've found from their research is that when these situations change, about 75-80% of them change within 10 years of what they call a political shock. So something big happens Either locally, there's a coup attempt um, or assassination or something like that, or even at a higher level, there, you know, the end of the Cold War uh, was a major political shock. 9-11 was a major political shock. So something happens that destabilizes the status quo, and it leads to changes which lead to other changes which leads to other changes. And then what you can see about 10 years later, a sort of delayed effect of the political shock is a kind of qualitative change in the nature of the relationships from these more 
intractable, destructive conflicts to actually a, a, a fairly rapid transition to peace. You have written that we lack sufficient understanding about how to promote and sustain peace. Why, why do we have this gap? You alluded to the fact that in some of these conflicts, the things that we usually try are not going to work. Right. What's interesting is, in some ways, you and I are having two different kinds of conversation right now. One is to try to understand conflict, particularly difficult conflicts that get that settle into destructive patterns, and how you know when do those change, and how do you move out of those? A different kind of conversation is about peace. You know, why do some communities actually have sustainably peaceful societies? There is a colleague of mine named Douglas Fry, who's an anthropologist at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. And he has, for about 30 years, studied peaceful societies around the world. He started because people didn't believe that humans were ever peaceful, and and that is, in fact, wrong, that humans were basically peaceful in most of our history. You know, so for a couple of million years on this planet, humans, particularly in hunter-gatherer societies, were peaceful societies. About 10,000 years ago, when human groups stopped and uh, sort of settled in areas and laid claim to areas, you know, sort of where there's good salmon fishing, for example, and started to gather stuff. That's when groups started to begin to attack each other and, and move into war. So war is a relatively new invention for humans. It's not that there wasn't violence and murder that would take place, but sort of group on group war is fairly new. And what Doug has been able to document in his research is that there are many societies some are more traditional local societies, all scaling all the way up to places like Costa Rica, Norway, Finland, Iceland, Denmark, who are sustainably peaceful societies, who have, have chosen peace for 50, 100 or more years. What we argue is that, you know, the international community has been trying to, the UN in particular, has, has been trying to understand how to sustain peace. They've been trying to reorganize their peace building and peacemaking infrastructure at the UN towards the goal of sustaining peace. What they find is that most of what they do is mitigate crises, you know, and try to deal with the more acute problems. And then a lot of what they do in terms of peacemaking isn't sustainable. It doesn't last. So they've been trying to, you know, sort of set a more aspirational goal towards sustaining peace um, in their work at the international level. And part of what we argue is that, well, one of the reasons why the international community doesn't do that well or really doesn't even know how to do that well is because peaceful societies are rarely studied. There are very few academics or policymakers that study peaceful societies. Humans study the things they fear, you know, cancer, depression, anxiety. Those are the things that we put so much time and energy into trying to understand. We rarely study more pro-social or positive um, experiences and environments. It's taken many disciplines decades to, sh- you know, to shift and study things like love and joy and uh, flow at work. And the same is true for peace. There are, there's peace studies and there are peace scholars, but mostly they're studying peacekeeping, peacemaking, and peace building in the context of war. How do you get out of war? How do you try to transition away from that? And what we found is that the conditions that lead to lead to sustainably peaceful societies are fundamentally different from the conditions that keep nations from sliding back into war. You need them both, 
You need to understand the things that sort of prevent violence and that mitigate violence and destructive conflict. And you need to understand those things that foster more sustainably peaceful relationships between groups and societies. What are the components of a peaceful society? It's really when members of any one group, take a religious group, any one religious group treats a member of another religious group with sort of respect and rapport and dignity, and that that is um, reciprocated. So when you have that basic dynamic where Muslims treat Hindus in more respectful, dignified ways, and you know Hindus re- respond in kind, when you have that kind of recipro- what we call positive reciprocity, it's a basic mechanism that at that level kind of emerges into sort of norms and institutions and taboos about how people and groups treat each other that become sustainable. So what we find is that you need to have, in any kind of community, basically a a strong ratio of more positive encounters between members of group and and a weaker ratio of negative encounters. It doesn't mean that negative encounters don't happen or, or, or shouldn't happen because, in fact, what people and groups learn from negative encounters from one another is, is you know, insights to prevent it or how to work through it constructively. So those kinds of conflicts are useful in terms of helping communities grow and deal with inequalities and injustices. But if you don't have a sufficient kind of context of respect, uh, what we call a, a positivity reservoir between members of different groups, then those negative encounters take over and they really start to lead to more competitive, contentious dynamics. What eventually that does, it it affects how the groups think about the future, how they plan for things together. It ultimately affects the kind of norms and institutions that exist in that society, how children are socialized to treat members of other groups, how they're educated about their histories in relation to other groups. When you have members of different groups treating each other with respect as opposed to with contempt, then what bubbles up are these norms and institutions and historical memories and plans for the future that perpetuate more peaceful societies. You and your colleagues have written about the necessity of having a vision of what peacefulness looks like. What if people have competing visions of what they think peacefulness looks like? So there are oftentimes these kind of competing narratives that are out there. The question is whether or not the case is made. So one of the cases that Doug Fry has studied is the the Iroquois nation that existed in upstate New York. There were multiple tribes. The tribes were at war for centuries. And at some point, the, the myth is that sort of the great leader kind of came up and had this vision of a federation where they would sort of join together and support each other in a more cooperative, collaborative way. There was a group of sort of wise women that were running these sort of safe houses and places, and they became sort of disciples of this vision. And they started to promote this idea of a vision for how these nations would come together. And it perpetuated a vision of peace and a reality of peace for centuries until, of course, the Europeans came in and you know, basically slaughtered many of them, uh, which led to another set of problems. But what the point I'm trying to make is that at a time when there is a lot of suspiciousness and enmity and contempt for members of other groups, um, you can get charismatic visionary leaders that sort of step up. And I want to be careful about how we think about leadership, because it isn't always just one great man that stands up and makes this. It's, it's oftentimes a, a group of people 
that sort of see it together and mobilize it together, men and women, and who are able to make that case and make it in a compelling way and really articulate what that vision is and the benefits of that for for moving societies forward. How would things change in the world if we implemented some of these ideas you're talking about, if we actually studied peaceful societies? What we've been trying to do here, we're about four years into, I would say, probably about a 10-year project to uh, identify the research that's out there on peaceful societies and then to sort of present it in ways to policymakers that help them understand it as a system, that there is no one magic bullet, but that there are a combination of things that feed each other that create these more robust, uh, peaceful communities and, and nations. And then to give them some sort of decision-making tools to help them understand that there are sometimes unintended negative consequences of well-intentioned actions. I think that's oftentimes what happens with a lot of international policymaking or or programming that's sort of top-down is that there, there sometimes is equal harm and equal good done. Part of what we're trying to do is educate policymakers and decision makers at the UN and elsewhere about complex systems. Like, how do you work with complex systems? What are the things that you shouldn't do that will harm? And what are the things that you should do? In a complex system, local solutions that emerge from within the system, from within the community, if they've come up and been sustained in the community, they're usually much more sustainable than anything an external actor can bring in from the outside. I had a colleague named Laura Chasen, who was a brilliant colleague who worked on a lot of divisive issues through a group out of Cambridge called the Public Conversations Project. And what Laura would say is that the first thing she would do when she was invited into a community to help them work on some very polarizing issue is she would try to identify what she called the networks of effective action. Who were local actors on the ground, even in a very polarized, sometimes unsafe place, who are still in communication and dialogue across the, at the other side. Sometimes they're clergy, sometimes they're merchants who are you know, just trying to run their cafe and, and keep the doors open to members of both groups. But who are those folks that are already um, effectively navigating this polarization and mitigating it? And is there a way to support what they do and encourage what they do already that will help it scale up and help it be a more robust internal intervention because usually those are much more effective than bringing any you know half-baked ideas in from the outside. We'll hear more from Megan Kamrick's conversation with Peter T. Coleman right after this break on Peace Talks Radio.
I'm Paul Ingalls with Megan Kamrick. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Now more with Peter T. Coleman, a psychologist with the Teachers College at Columbia University. He's also director of the Morton Deutsch International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution. Peter, how does a conflict become a quagmire? Typically what happens is things accumulate over time. And so what often happens is what will become a simple issue starts to escalate and become more intense and more people get involved and then more issues get involved like how, how people are treating each other, how people are talking about the issue. And over time, what starts to happen is more and more issues, individuals, and then even sort of norms around how to talk about the issue and institutions. And eventually those things start to feed each other uh, and create these two great divides. So in Israel, you have official documents that will present one account of uh, what has happened there, there historically as opposed to multiple accounts, or you have actually fundamentally different accounts through different kinds of official uh, organizations there or governments there. Um, So basically what happens is something grows over time, conflicts expand over time, and then they sort of multiply into different kinds of issues, different kinds of individuals, norms, institutions, historical accounts, and then those those things all start to work together as a system that reinforce each other. And then when you have a system like that, then dealing with any one uh, component of that, you know, the, a, ch- a change in leadership of the organizations or a, a change in policy by the government or, you know, or even as people come and go through the, through the divide, there are so many other things that are keeping the conflict in place that they become less tractable, less negotiable. And why is peacemaking so difficult then in these situations? Peacemaking in the context of these more intractable or polarized disputes is particularly hard because if the conflict has become community-wide, you know, if, as in this country, you have sort of red states and blue states and you have gun control, you have gun clubs and you have anti, uh, an anti, or, or gun control lobby, you know, you have these institutions. So who negotiates that? Like who sits down and actually comes to an agreement or understanding? The conflict has become so pervasive, so divided. There are different, you know, and then the media gets involved and there's sort of different realities on both sides. And there's a huge emotional investment in the sort of loyalty of each side to each other, uh, to their own side and contempt for the other side. And all of those things are sort of in the mix. So it gets to a place where typically what we call peacemaking, which is trying to sort of reason with each other, share perspectives, create a new perspective and a new understanding and an agreement. It's very hard to do because there isn't any necessarily formal leadership in that system, right? Even if you do get Washington politicians to agree to some kind of new legislation or or a set of principles even that they could agree on, you still have communities all over the country that that feel very differently about that, and that might just cause more conflict. So peacemaking in in a more traditional sense of kind of sitting at a table and coming to an agreement becomes less effective 
in these systemic conflicts because there's so many other things that are um, driving the conflict. And it is a space where we try to look at moral conflicts. So usually what we do is we uh, measure people's attitudes on um, divisive moral issues like abortion, climate change. At Columbia with students, will uh, you know, recently there's been a lot of attention paid to cont- uh, provocative political speeches and whether students are comfortable with having more provocative speakers on campus or not. Uh, we measure people's attitudes, and then we bring people in who have opposing attitudes on some issues, and we a- invite them to have a conversation about them and and to try to reach some kind of consensus. What our lab allows us to do is is track their emotional dynamics, how they behave towards one another, the kinds of questions they ask, and even how they think about the issues before the encounter and then after the encounter, and to study, you know, basically whether what the conditions are or what the dynamics are that lead to more constructive conversations on these moral differences versus things that just, you know, again, sink into the quagmire of contempt uh, and shut down. You wrote about this in an article, the challenges we face today as a nation at home and around the world demand the moral courage to resist the temptation to oversimplify what threatens us and to engage more directly with the gray areas, the ambiguities, the doubts, and with those with whom we differ. And I understand you've you've introduced these ideas into these studies in the Difficult Conversations Lab. So what has been the effect when complexity is introduced? The takeaway, I think, on this is the value of complexity in conversations about things that are very complicated or complex, but that we have oversimplified. So the gun lobby, you know, the gun control debate is one. And for some people, it is about identity, and it is about community and a sense of the past and history. For other people, it's it's around issues of safety and the law. But all of these things are important to understand in that conversation. What tends to happen is that politicians and lobbyists and the media will oversimplify, take one side, present that one side, and then it lead to the sort of oversimplification of a conversation that is actually very, is and should be very complicated. So what we've done in our lab simply is we'll take one of those issues and we'll either bring a dyad in who have opposing values or opposing opinions on that issue, and we either present them with sort of pro and con information on, say, gun control. You know, what's the, what's sort of one side of the issue and what's the other side of the issue? Much like a debate on a television news show would present it. You know, here's one position, here's the other position. Or we'll take the same information to a dyad, bring in a, a different dyad, But we'll present that information by saying, you know, there are multiple dimensions to this problem. Um, Some of them are legal, some of them are human, some of them are about communities and relationships and safety. And we'll present the same information, but we'll present it as a more kind of complex constellation of related things. And what we've found when we do that is that the conversations that take place in the lab are emotionally more sort of dynamic and that people feel both sort of sometimes frustrated, but also sometimes interested. They're more willing to continue the conversation. They're more thoughtful and nuanced in their understanding of the issues afterwards. They're able to kind of 
generate joint statements that they can both feel comfortable enough sharing. And they don't solve these problems, you know, in these half-hour dialogues that they have in the lab, but they leave them intrigued, feeling better about themselves and the other, feeling more informed about the issue, and being willing to continue the conversation. And that's what's important about these things, is that there aren't simple solutions to, you know, the abortion divide in our country, but there are important conversations that can take place that can lead to better relationships. I've written about one case that is particularly fascinating on this issue, and I have a book called The 5%. And in that, there's an account of a pro-life, pro-choice dialogue process that took place in Boston. This was facilitated by this, my former colleague, Laura Chasen. And it had happened in 1994, right after there had been some shootings that took place in Brookline um, in the Boston area, and several women were, were killed and injured. And it was at a time when the rhetoric around abortion in Boston was very hot. And what happened is three women leaders on the pro-choice side and three women leaders on the pro-life side decided to come together, were invited to come together by Laura Chasen and the Public Conversations Project to try to have some kind of dialogue. They did it in secret in a clandestine location. They agreed to meet a couple of times. They were both terrified, and they ended up meeting for six years in secret. You know, they were afraid of violence, but they were also afraid of just losing, you know, having their reputations affected by the fact that they were talking with the other side. And then in 2001, they they published a, a joint article in the Boston Globe. I think it's called Talking with the Enemy. And they described their experience of this dialogue process where they had come in certain that the other side were killers, were evil, were, you know, that they were going to be tainted just sitting down with them. And what evolved over time was their recognition of the sort of humanity of the other side, the fact that there were all decent women that believed in trying to help women and women's rights and women's reproductive rights. And they differed fundamentally on the issue of abortion. And in fact, in their more intimate conversations with each other, they became even more polarized on that issue because it became more and more important to them that they're able to convince their now friends about the importance of their side. But their relationships changed. And so they actually were able to find common ground and help keep each other safe. So when they heard something on their side about some possible violence, they would share that with the other side. They found ways of getting joint funding in order to prevent unwanted pregnancies. And so they were able to sort of change the nature of their relationships, even though their attitudes on this issue became more polarized. And it's a particularly important case because it it did not only affect Eventually, when these women came out, their leadership and their description of their experience helped shape not only the Boston rhetoric and dialogue around abortion, but also the national debate. It really had a broader effect on that because of the courage and this process of reintroducing nuance into these relationships of these six leaders. That's really inspiring, Peter. How can we make sure this happens more on a wider scale? Well, that's a great question. You know, there there are groups around the country that try to do this, and there are particularly groups these days that are having um, Republican and Democratic dinners to start to try to have these conversations. There's a group called the National Issues Forum, 
and they too sponsor these community dialogue sessions over polarizing issues in our communities that help reintroduce nuance into this. So there are actually a, you know, a fair amount of community organizations, Public Conversations Project is another example, of these forums that happen at the community level that are trying to encourage people into this conversation. But I also, I wanna make a plug for the role of the media on this um, because the media, as you know, is playing an important role in the perpetuation of polarization and the sort of moving of the camps farther and farther apart. And there's an article that came out two weeks ago, uh, two articles by a, um, a journalist named Amanda Ripley. And she's talking specifically to journalists and the role that journalists can play in introducing more nuance and complexity into what they do and to you know mitigating their own role in you know, polarizing this nation at this time. And I think that's a, a very important read. The one, one piece, a short piece was in The Guardian, but a longer piece is in a journalist um, blog called The Whole Story. And in that, she really lays out for journalists what they can do, how they can sort of practice journalism in a way that doesn't fall prey to this polarization and contribute to it, but actually try to reintroduce nuance and complexity into their reporting. So there are things that are happening in schools, in communities, you know, with journalists and in media that I think are trying to counteract this divide of this nation and, and around the world. I am curious how you get people to participate in the Difficult Conversations Lab. I mean, most people are like, hell no, I don't want to do that. That's why I don't go home for Christmas. <laughs> right. Well, no, people are interested. You know, I mean, they are interested in these are issues that people feel strongly about and they do want to engage. And, you know, when they come in, all they know is that we're going to ask them to talk about a, soci a, a sociopolitical issue, is what we say. And so they, and they know that they've been measured on these different issues, um, so they probably have some sense that one of them will be picked, but they don't really know which one. But people, again, as I said, when, when they feel deeply about these challenges that are hum basic human dilemmas, often them, oftentimes, they're, they're eager to talk about them and eager to come in and do this. And, and I think the experience is, is interesting as well. And then we sort of share the findings with them, which they usually find interesting. That's Peter T. Coleman, director of the Morton Deutsch International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution, talking with Megan Kamrick. You can hear this entire program again at our website, peacetalksradio.com. It's where you can also go to hear the whole interview with Peter Coleman and our earlier interview with Raid Al-Hardar and Nogah Harpaz with Combatants for Peace. Go to our website, peacetalksradio.com, look for the September 2018 episode, and click on the picture of either of our guests. That's where to go also to find partial transcripts, photographs, links to websites, and other resources about today's topic. It's also where you can go to make a tax-deductible contribution to the nonprofit media organization Good Radio Shows Incorporated, which produces Peace Talks Radio separate and apart from your public media outlet. That's peacetalksradio.com. Nola Daves-Moses is executive director of Good Radio Shows Incorporated. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Megan Kamrick, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks so much for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.